You are listening to the Soul Connection Duo podcast, a podcast that explores spirituality, shares vulnerable stories, brings awareness to different healing modalities, and offers hope to individuals who may be grieving a loss. I'm Alexa Mathis. And I'm Sydney Ham, and we are your hosts, also known as the Soul Connection Duo. Get ready to connect to your soul and start healing within. Today, our guest is Pam Rader. Pam is the founder of Shift Labs, Shift Power Yoga, and the author of the best-selling memoir, Through the Cracks. She is a life coach and leadership de- development facilitator who believes in a heart-led approach to transformation. In addition to bringing some street cred to the table by navigating healing her life while loving her son through a harrowing decade-long heroin addiction, Pam is known for her unique and powerful strategies that blend her background in spiritual study with her extensive study in personal development and coaching. Her highest vision is to lead people to a deeper connection, more peace, and the fulfillment that arises from living authentically. Welcome to the Soul Connection Duo podcast, Pam, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really grateful to be here with you. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, Pam, and how you got into some of the work that you're doing now? Sure. I think like most people, um, yeah, I, what prompted my seeking was struggle. I think that struggle is the thing uh, that that propels us into seeking the depths of, of our souls. Um, and so when I uh, was 21, I was married to a very addicted, very mentally ill uh, person who was quite abusive and violent and manipulative. And um, I had a son with him at when I was 22. And when things got really uh, hairy, I decided to leave him. And he decided he wasn't going to let me leave and held me hostage for six hours it turned into um, basically an episode of the old show Cops, if you want to be real. And I had to escape with my baby out a window and run down the street. And it was it was really um, not what I had planned for my life. And I carried on. I, I went to work and, you know, went back to I went back to school, rather got a job to support my child and kind of carried on it. And, and did so for a few years until some kind of cracked in me. I was, you know, putting on the tough guy act, but I, there was some big healing that needed to be done. And that's what sort of started my journey into yoga. Yoga was my first sort of step into um, a healing modality that was different from the traditional means, you know, I'd been to some counseling and some EDMR and different things like that. And yes, they were helpful, but um, I got on the yoga mat and I thought, Ooh, there's something magical happening here. And, uh, yeah, that's what, that's what started my journey. And I would like to just point out that, you know, no thorns, no roses. If we don't have struggles, we don't seek. And regardless of how terrible that was, I, I wouldn't wish it away at all, because it is why I'm here today doing good work in the world. It was the catalyst for me seeking the growth that led me where I am. And I'm deeply grateful for those experiences. Yeah, that really resonates the piece of like, if we don't have struggle, we don't seek. I think 
Sydney and I can both relate to that in terms of how we've found our ways to different different modalities or things that we've been exploring lately. And I love that. That's such a beautiful piece of like how you've found your way into the the yoga work that you do. And I'm assuming that's also what uh, was the inception of your shift. Yeah, I started teaching yoga 25 years ago and um, I I started really training in earnest, doing a lot of deep dives and, and uh, immersive trainings um, in around 2010. And I saw the transformation in my life but also saw um, as I got more proficient at facilitating and leading teacher trainings, I saw the massive impact that this work was having on other human beings' lives. And, and I wondered, how can I share that work with people who are never going to step on a yoga mat? Because this work is so important and everyone needs to have access to healing. And so I started seeking out um life coaching courses and, and new mentors and teachers that resonated with me that the teachings aligned with those of yoga and believe it or not, Tony Robbins was one of them. I mean, he's like, he's the goat, right? The, like the, the, the OG in this space, but he's, his teachings are actually very aligned with the yogic teachings. And, uh, so I, I got my life coaching, um, certificate through him and I continue to work with like so many world-class teachers and leaders and mentors. And you know what? The universal truth is there in all of it. If you're looking for it. Um, so my goal is to take, you know, the, the teachings of yoga, but blend them with sort of cutting edge, um, uh, uh, human psychology and that sort of thing to, to really make this work impactful and, um, workable and integrative for anyone. They don't have to be yogic in any way. A few people that we've actually had on have their journeys have also kind of started um, their healing through yoga as well. So um, there's definitely a power in it. Do you mind just sharing a little bit about um, your the business and the shift, shift labs and some of the components of that? Sure, yeah. So um, I do one-to-one coaching. So I do a lot of coaching. I, a lot of people reach out to me to work on relationships, um, romantic relationships, but relationships between parents and children, work relationships, those kinds of things. Uh, people reach out to me to help to build businesses um, and to break through limiting beliefs, that sort of thing. I also have created uh, leadership programs. So heart-led leadership programs that are based on the teachings of yoga, but put in a very sort of corporate package that help leaders um, to understand and appreciate the worlds of their employees so that they create a culture where people are seen, heard, and known, and a a place where people can belong and, um, and have purpose. And that's really, really important to me that we can get a sense of, you know, people love to go to work because they feel cared for. I think that's really something that's lost and something that causes a lot of distress in most of the workforce today. So I feel compelled to be um, a a cause for at least delivering uh, the tools for leaders to start spreading um, more heart-led leadership uh, and create more connection and healing in the workplace. 
I also train coaches too. So I certify coaches. Um, if people want to get into this kind of coaching, I take all the best stuff that I have learned from all of those really great leaders in the world that charge you lots and lots of money. And uh, I put it into my certification. So you get the best of the best all in one place. And I love empowering new coaches because I can only reach so many people, but for each person that I train, they can reach more people. And then the impact of this beautiful work is exponential. So that's a little bit about shift labs. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. And it's really needed in general in the world today. Like I know Sydney just has recently left her um, profession as a nurse and I work in the corporate world. If you want to call it that um, I do environmental work, but I, it's under the umbrella of a big corporate company. And I think if we were seeing more of this, it's true. People would feel more supported. They'd want to be showing up to work every day. And um, that's a big piece of why I think a lot of people end up leaving those positions, right? Is that support piece and really feeling like you are valued as an employee when you're under these big companies to be able to feel that you're needed within the company it can be sometimes really challenging so that's really amazing that you're bringing that into the workplace whether it is under a big corporate umbrella or a smaller company I'm sure you probably have worked with both hey yeah and you know what it's it's easy to make the leaders and the corporations the big bad wolves but really what's happened is the world has just changed and and people are under more stress now. And post-pandemic people, I think everyone has PTSD to some degree. <laughs> and if you don't have some social emotional skills, it makes it very difficult to operate a company. So it benefits everyone when the leader can um, have those social emotional skills to help to try to understand what's going on instead of everyone taking everything personally and top-down management and all of that. It's like, we're all in this together. How do we progress and make this business successful so that all of you can make your dreams come true within the business and we all get what we want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Everyone needs to be working together for sure. Mm -hmm. So did you have another thought on that? Yeah, I think that's like exactly kind of what I've switched into now. Just um, I'm helping my parents out with some family businesses since I've kind of left the nursing world. But I mean, technically I'm managing, but I never view myself as like a superior to any of my staff. It's, you know, we're, we're all in this together. If I don't have you guys showing up to work every day, like the company, um, you know, it's not going to function the same. So I think too, because of also what I've been through too, is I do have like, you know, a lot of respect and um, like understanding for people when things happen too, so that they do feel supported in the best way that they, they can be. And that mutual respect too is huge. It doesn't matter if you're the boss or whatever, but I've had some pretty crazy um, management or managers or whatever in the past too. So I kind of strive to not be exactly like that so it's amazing you that know what those those people are our greatest teachers mm -hmm. and I'll tell you why they they do things that we don't like and then we go home and say I would never be like that and then lo and behold the universe shows us how dumb we are because six months down the road some situation will come up where you had you not had that experience catch yourself about to act the same way as that person did. And you go, oh my gosh, now I know why they did that. 
and you have compassion for them and gratitude for like seeing like, Oh, I don't want to show up that way. So I always think when people treat me, you know, when they give you like a life lesson in how not to behave, start looking because the universe is about to present you with something to make sure that you're not still dumb, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. Actually though, like when, when you are presented with those situations, um, you're right. They always pop up again and you really have to remember how you want to show up in those times. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) As we were talking before we started um, recording here, we wanted to kind of focus our conversation on, um, obviously we started our podcast kind of based on loss and grief and you've written a book um do you mind just telling us a little bit about that um kind of the inspiration behind that and then we can focus a little bit on that grief component in regards um to the um addictions yeah so um as a coach and leading and facilitating trainings for so many years i had so many people say you really need to write a book and i was like uh like i roll so hard i could sprain my neck you know and <laughs> And I was just like, my story is not that special. I really don't feel like I, you know, I would really like, like have anything important to say. And then I had a really beautiful friend of mine, Jillian Richards, who's a filmmaker. And she said to me, it's because your story is not special that you need to share it. There's so many people out there that it's going to resonate with and they feel alone and they think they're the only ones and they feel defective and you need to share your story so that they know that there are other people out there that have made it to the other side. So I, I sat down and wrote uh, my memoir called Through the Cracks. And it is the journey from that, that day uh, when my first husband tried to kill me to, um, and to and through my uh, son's heroin addiction. So when my son was about 13 or 14, I started noticing signs of addiction. He wasn't addicted to heroin at that stage, but he was, you could tell he was the kid that he wasn't just experimenting with anything. It had him right away. And by the time he was 16, he was in and out of the house and I couldn't even have him in the house most of the time because he was kind of violent with his little brother and um, stealing and all the things that addicts do. And, uh, he is now 30 years old. He just turned 30 and he has finally been clean for 15 months now. He has a lovely girlfriend and a puppy and he's a barber in uh, New Westminster and he's an extraordinary human being. Um, but during those years of addiction, so almost 15 years really, and uh, 10 years of heroin addiction or fentanyl now, um, I really grieved the loss of the vision I had for my son and I prepared myself for him to die. There are so many mothers out there that, you know, lose their children every single day to fentanyl addiction, um, whether it's accidental overdose or, or not. But, uh, and I knew again, I'm not special. There's no reason why I would be spared that. And so every day I would wake up and I used to pray that he wouldn't die. And then it got so bad that I thought maybe it's better for him. And then it's an awful thing to say, you know, about your kid. 
Um, but if he was going to suffer that much for his whole life, I was, I, you know, I had to make peace with that. I might lose him. And then I'm, how am I going to deal with that? And that led me into a whole nother depth of healing. And I really had to sort of put my money where my mouth was in, in the teachings of yoga and learn. Um, I had to heal when you have an addict in the family, you need recovery. The family needs recovery. You can't heal the addict and you can't go out there and fix them, but you need to do the work for yourself. So it's almost like when someone passes away, like the morning, I was mourning my son while he was still alive. And I had to find ways to start to heal. So that's what propelled the book writing. And actually through writing the book, it's helped so many people. And I'm so grateful. And every time someone sends me a message, I, I heal a little bit more, you know, just knowing that I, I shared that. Um, but the process of writing it was, was deeply cathartic and, and healing as well. So yeah, that's, um, and I think there are so many parents out there right now that are, you know, they've got kids that are still walking earthside, but they don't know where they are. They're on the street. They're sleeping under a bridge. They've, you know, whatever it is that's going on. And these parents are grieving, you know, and brothers and sisters and, and, and aunts and uncles, and they're all grieving for their loved ones that are still alive because they've been stolen by addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really such a, common thing right now I think after like especially just the exaggeration of seeing addictions through COVID and how that hasn't obviously been um, declining at all since then and I know we're seeing it like I live in a little tiny town in BC and it's pretty prevalent here right now too and it, I always do think of that when I see all of these people who are clearly struggling with addiction um, how that must feel as a family member to be either seeing it or not seeing it depending if like if it's somebody who lives in the same area as their family still or oftentimes they're displaced to other communities because they're that's just where they end up as they're dealing with all of their um, all of their addictions and all of that. So I, yeah, I can only imagine how much grief and I mean, of course, so many other emotions that must come up in the process of that. Well, you feel guilty and angry and sad and scared and all of it. And we get these messages that you know, from, from generations past that didn't know how to deal with addiction. Well, you just kick them out and you just, you're hearing that. And then you're hearing, you know, tough love doesn't work. You, you need to keep them close, but also enabling doesn't work, you know, and then people say, get boundaries, but they don't tell you how, and no one walks you through what happens to your nervous system. When you start to create boundaries and someone grows three heads, like there's just very little help out there to guide people. And I know there are things like Al-Anon and, and, and that sort of thing that didn't really, I didn't find it very helpful for me. And I know that that depends on the group, but I, I make it a big part of what I do to, to create. And I'm in the process right now of actually creating a program to support the families of addicts. Um, 
with all of the healing kind of work that I had to do condensed into sort of a, um, a 12 step program that coincides with the 12 steps of recovery, but is more of a spiritual journey for, um, the people who are loving an addict. And, uh, if I can show them the way to come back to themselves and to, um, find equanimity and find some peace, whether their children, loved one, et cetera, is using or not using, then that's a win because addiction is going to rob your loved one of a great part of their life, if not their whole life. And, and that is up to them, but it's up to you how much of your life you'll let it take. You know, and when we are enmeshed and codependent, the addiction's taken us down with it. Mm-hmm. So then, and then we lose marriages, we lose relationships with friends and family, and we have to grieve those losses as well. So addiction is like the aftermath of addiction. It's like a nuclear bomb. And, um, if you love an addict, if somebody that, you know, in in your family, like, trust me, you need to get help. (laughs) You need some healing. You need to seek some, um, some healing for yourself. And that's the only thing you can control. I think it's really beautiful and really brave that you were able to share your story and that you've really um, transmuted this into something that you're able to share with people and help other people through obviously really having that struggle yourself. And um, I'm so glad to hear that your son is, is in his own healing stage right now. And that's amazing. Um, But yeah, just the, the process of, being able to write that book, like you said, it's, it was cathartic and, um, and having, I'm sure so much come up in the process. Um, when I was doing the, a little bit of digging on your, your work and the stuff that you, you do, I was looking at your shift labs website and part of the, um, or one of your write-ups about the book release said, the, the title of it is do the thing get the power and I think that's just hearing you talk about it I'm I'm sensing that and feeling the power that really came to you as you were going through that process yeah um and I at some point I I I had to make peace with that I I might lose my son but I but I was not going to lose myself in it all and um you know, that's possible if we really do the work and then we get, you know, do the thing and get the power, right? That's, uh, we get the power back or the power for our own happiness, our own results back in our hands. Now, interestingly, it was kind of at this last place, like my son, I really thought he was going to die. It was, it was, he was in psychosis all the time. It was not looking good. He'd been kicked out of another treatment center and it was kind of a last ditch effort and, and a group of amazing individuals who are doing things quite differently um, at this place called West Coast Sober Living. And um, they picked him up and they said, you know, we're just going to love you. And they called me and asked if, if I would, you know, contribute to helping him be there. And I said, yes, because I knew he would die otherwise. And my son didn't want to be on opiate antagonists anymore or opiate antagonist therapy anymore. So suboxone or methadone, he just said, if I'm going to get clean, I'm going to get clean. And he was very sick. It's very painful to go through withdrawal. And he was at his, um, at the recovery center 
And he was about to pack his backpack in the middle of the night and leave because he wanted to just go get high and make it all go away, the pain. And he was thinking about, can I come back in? If I don't get back in, I guess I'm on the street again. Oh, well, I'll just OD and that's the end of it. I don't even care anymore. And he stood up and walked to the doorway with his backpack and he said something changed. He just paused and he asked himself, what am I doing? And he said, what if I stayed and what if I prayed? And he did. And he tells me that that's the difference. He just did one thing different. He asked a new question. Now, our mutual friend, Joe Greenland, also known as Fox Dreamer, said, those prayers are so powerful. His spirits, guides, and angels were around him all the time, playing chess, basically waiting for him to ask them for help. And when he woke up in the morning, he called and he talked to the owner of the house, Ronnie, and he said, I almost left last night. And Ronnie said, well, good. Thank God you told me. Now I can help you. Now your healing starts. And you know what? You're not in trouble. We're going to love you. And it wasn't an easy road. And he would have been kicked out of every other treatment center. He got in a fight with one of the other guys over some girl and the, the owner of the house. He says, oh, sometimes men solve things with fights. Just get over it. You know, like he didn't, there was no drama about it. And, and so this healing power of love is so incredible for him, but watching that healed something in me as well. I was able to forgive myself and let go of all the stuff, all, all the feeling wronged by all this stuff that goes with addiction. Um, this, this idea of love and, and then what it prayer to whatever you call your higher power creator, whatever, um, it's powerful and it's something we can all do at any time. And I think that we underutilize it. We tend to only pray when we're really like desperate, but, but offering those prayers and holding space for, for those who maybe can't even pray for themselves. I think that's a really great, um, a great thing to mention because a lot of people think I can't afford a coach or I can't do it to this course, or I can't do tools or whatever. You know what? Practice hitting your knees because one day the universe is going to take you to your knees anyway. So you might as well have some calluses and um, practice, practice prayer, practice. I'm not religious at all. I'm just, I, I just believe in, in, in that there's something greater than myself. And um, my son proved it to me that day. That's so beautiful. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm going to start crying a little bit. <laughs> I was actually going to ask what the turning point was for him um, stopping using. So thank you so much for sharing that. That sounds like a really beautiful, I guess you could call it spiritual experience. Um, and one of the things too, we've done um, workshops with Joe as well. And um, he always does mention to kind of ask the universe um, for kind of what you want and things. So that's just it's so beautiful to hear that. Um, and yeah, I'm assuming that kind of after that day was when he started to, um, on his trajectory of healing. Yeah. And, um, it's interesting because he's a different kid now. And I learned something from Joe just this last weekend. Um, 
when Nick comes home, he's so happy and joyful and funny. And I have to tell you, when he was a child, he was an Eeyore. He was just like, he's the only kid that was ever miserable at Disneyland. Like there, <laughs> and there was always something wrong. There was always drama. And he's just this like delightful being. And um, Joe told me that in some of his ODs that he had, he crossed to the other side. And that when you go to the other side, you bring a piece of that back with you. You bring some knowing back, some light back that you didn't have. And, um, and it, and it activates when you pray. And so there was this combination of him ODing shortly before he got to that place. They found him in the park, OD'd and, um, helped him. And then he got to this place where they loved him. And then he, he prayed for himself. And that started his healing journey. And I think it's just so, it's so amazing to look at all these things that a lot of people don't like to talk about. Cause as you said, Alexa, it's woo woo or whatever, but you know what? Woo woo or not, it saved my son's life. And I'm grateful. Looking at the woo woo side of things to be able to actually believe that there is something else out there. And I think that story is just a perfect example of, how we can trust this guidance that is being given to us from who knows where um, and whether anyone wants to believe that that was the experience we had or not is totally up to them. But we can really, if we're able to listen to that, that guidance, it can really change the trajectory of where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. Just the willingness to, the willingness to trust. We try to control. Um so many things in our lives and it's such an illusion and i think that the more we try to control the more scared we are so if you're controlling everything in your life and trying to control people and trying to control outcomes um, and trying to control manage people's perceptions of you you got to really sit down and ask yourself what am i so afraid of because mm -hmm. when we have faith there's nothing to control when we're when we trust our intuition, we trust our guts, we, tr we trust our gut rather, and we trust that there is some sort of guidance, then what is there to control in the course of miracles? I'm not, I'm not like big into it, but I remember, uh, reading, um, he who holds galaxies together can mind the small details of my life. And yet we try to control just in case he who holds galaxies together hasn't figured it out yet. <laughs> how <laughs> oh, true hey and yeah I think like well I know Sydney and I have both had a lot of recent changes in our own lives and just really being able to lean into that and trust that there is this path that is going to work out for us whether we can actually see that right now or not right it's this or something better and leaning into that and not trying to force and it's true. It always works out way worse when you're trying to force things and you don't enjoy it as much either. Yeah. Control's exhausting. It's depleting and it, um, it gets us, um, more sick as a society because disconnection is the cause of most of our angst. You know, we think we're more connected than ever with social media and stuff, but we're really deeply disconnected. Um, we have this surface level connection. Um, but when we control, we push people away. 
No one likes to be controlled. No one likes to be told what to do. No one likes to be managed. And so we actually get the opposite of what we're trying to protect ourselves. You know, we get, we get the very thing we're trying to protect ourselves from, which is rejection and disconnection when we try to control. And so we have to ask ourselves like, oh, what, what, am, what am I really doing here? What, what really matters? And when we we're really honest, we can get to this like, wow, I'm just scared. Mm-hmm. And what if we just had the courage to be vulnerable enough to say, I'm scared and I don't know what to do. So I'm organizing my pantry. And I think that you should wear a different shirt. Like, you know, <laughs> rather than letting that be the cover up, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's like a huge thing too, especially in grief is you've kind of, whether it's anticipatory grief or, you know, sudden loss, whatever, um, you, you lose that sense of control. You've lost either that trust for me, it was trust. Um, you know, your life kind of blows up in an instant and, um, you do kind of start to let things consume you a little bit more, but I think, um, kind of what you were saying there is just, trust and what Lex was saying too is just trusting the process and kind of taking things by day by day like like you're saying for me some days like I couldn't get out of bed other days um you know it's walking my dog but just little steps at a time kind of whatever you need at at that given time um and the also the support as well is is so huge having the people around you to um, support you through that. Like you were saying, when you released your book and you didn't realize it was gonna make such a huge impact on other people going through that. It was similar for us with this podcast too. We didn't know how many people it was also going to help. And I just think having that support network as well and it is just so huge. I think we should distinguish what you you said, um, you know, like grief, uh, sudden loss. That's where the, the um the term grief stricken comes from. It's like being struck by lightning or grief stricken. And we don't really have any control over when grief rolls in. And sometimes the mind will protect us from intense grief with that little bit of denial or distraction or whatever, because the enormity of the pain is too much to take at at the time. So grief will roll in when it rolls in and we don't have control over that. But mourning is something we do have control over. So we must distinguish grief from mourning. Mourning is something we do. Mourning is a practice. Mourning is the process of intentionally walking through the grief so that we eventually get to healing. And there are so many beautiful ways that people can can do that. One of the things that I suggest to a lot of my clients who experience sudden loss, they feel like they just didn't get to say what they wanted to say. And so I invite them to get a beautiful journal that reminds them of that person and to write to them all the wonderful things and share with them in their journal. Um, you know, there's just so many ways that we, that individuals can mourn. That's just one of, of a myriad of ways, but I think it's important uh, for people who are dealing with loss to, to acknowledge that I might not have control over when grief comes but I do have control over when I feel up to it, that I can go through the process of mourning, celebrating that person's life, saying the things I wanted to say, you know, feeling some sense of completion through the morning. Yeah, that's, I think something that Lex and I have really been learning and doing over the years too, is finding, finding these ways, I guess, to honor 
um, in this case, um, Spencer, who we lost a few years ago, but also other people in our lives as well. I've tried a few different things and I think it's good to always try and see what works for you because it doesn't always resonate or feel right. I did, you know, for a while, I did try writing for a while and eventually switched into some other other things that felt a little more aligned for me. But I think that's, it was a beautiful way for me to start too, because it was, it was a huge shock, obviously. So yeah, and you want to feel like the person's kind of still there, even if they're not physically, you know, they are around um, close by. So, and you know, when we lose people, we have this sudden, um, our bubble is burst because we actually think that we have some control in our lives and our world. And, um, we're so scared that everything we thought was true is no longer true. And anything could happen to anybody at any time. And it rocks our entire sense of safety, security, and what's known in the world. So it's natural for us to want to try to control, right? It's just natural. So we want to be compassionate, but also like recognize like, oh, this is what's happening. I'm scared. Going right back to like when I'm controlling, I'm scared. And acknowledging what we're scared of is going to help us relinquish control. And when we relinquish the control, we can heal because control is just a distraction from your healing. Yeah. And it sounds, Pam, like you obviously have done a lot of work around this in terms of of like working to heal during your son's addiction. And um, I'm curious what some of the ways that you took into your own practice were in order to really just get on that, that path of healing and be able to talk about this so openly and to put it into words of how you were feeling at the time and how you are processing it now. I was very lucky to have the platform of being a yoga teacher because and owning my own studio, I could say whatever I wanted to say. But even before that, I I was very, um, very blessed to have that platform and to have an incredible teacher, my very first real um, mentor and teacher in yoga was Baron Baptiste. And he's a like multiple New York Times bestselling author. He's world renowned at what he does. Um, but he he really saw me and he really stood for my greatness. And he called me out, you know, he said, you're a control freak. Like, what are you doing? Share from your heart, be vulnerable, less show more soul, just share who you are with people and watch what happens. And he was like, not having it any other way, like just be authentic or don't do this, you know? And so I was very blessed to have that guidance. And so I started sharing little bits while I was teaching yoga in terms of how do we make peace with discomfort? How do we learn to, you know, put our attention on what we want and let go of what we can't, can't control. And so I started just talking a little bit about my story little by little. And that got my nervous system used to that. And my voice would shake and sometimes I would cry. And then always people would come up to me and say, Hey, you know, I have somebody in my family or that's happened to me, or you were so brave to share that. Thank you so much. That touched me. And that was inspiration for me to keep going. And then I have, I, I have a natural gift for storytelling. I was quite a little embellisher when I was a child and loved to tell stories. So (laughs) I was like, how can I parlay that gift? And I started speaking and it just kind of expanded from there, but 
what I would say is how do I speak about it so easily? And how did I work through it? Is that I stopped hiding it. I, I stopped making my problems so special that I was the only one and hiding it. I, I got up to something bigger than myself and thought, how can this, how can I share in a way that can help others? And that was the biggest catalyst to my healing. And then it's just, you know, grown from there. But what I would say is if you're suffering, don't suffer alone, talk about it, share it, be vulnerable. Um, find safe spaces to be vulnerable, share your story. It's so healing to do that. You know, storytelling is a lost art, um, but it's the way that so many ancient cultures used to heal. Yeah. We've learned that a lot through the process of having this podcast and really trying our best to share authentically whatever, whatever it is we're going through at the time or of course, just from the start with the the story and Sid being able to authentically and bravely share her own story of loss and grieving. And yeah, I think it's some of the most beautiful way we can connect with others is really just seeing that, like you say, it's not special. We're all experiencing these things, whether it's the same thing. I think we can always find connection in in other people's stories and really start to see them as humans too so it's really special yeah um i think that when we i think actually we have a responsibility to share our stories if we're here living this human existence and having all of these experiences why would we lock them up so that the people coming behind us also have to learn the lessons the hard way what if we said hey we're all just walking each other home as Ram Das says, and we're on the path. And I've been a little further down the path than you. And I know you're hurting right now and I can't walk the path for you, but I can reach my hand back and hold yours while you walk it. And that's really what I believe sharing our stories does. I think too, like some of the, um, I guess the main things that really helped me initially through my healing following loss and through grief and everything was hearing other people's stories. And, um, a lot of times it was like, you know, I can't find anyone who has not the exact same story as me, but you know, a young, I referred to myself as like a widow at the time. Um, but then I kind of got to the point where it was like, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. They don't have to be my age or, you know, in a similar boat as me, it's all kind of, um, even just, reading or listening to other people's shared experiences um helps like even you know your story of grief that kind of anticipatory grief um although our stories aren't the same it it is there are similar similarities and there is healing and hearing what someone else has been through and the ways they've been able to I guess work through that struggle and um kind of come through the other side and a lot of people that have been through these difficult things and struggles um you know I do find and especially through doing this podcast can transform um some really beautiful things whether it's books or you know workshops um other businesses it's it's been amazing just to see what um all all of our guests but just other people we know as well have been able to create through times of hardship so it's been yeah well there's one question that we can all ask that 
gives everyone the access to turn terrible things into something beautiful. And that question is, who will I become that I wouldn't have become if this didn't happen? Who will I choose to become that I wouldn't have become if this didn't happen? And, you know, I don't think any of us are going to say bitter, miserable victims. Like we're going to be like, I'm going to make this mean something. Like I'm going to become someone who shares. I want to make my life better. Make this loss mean something. I want to make sure that my son's years of struggles in addiction are not for nothing. I mean, we lost his father. His biological father drank himself to death in a hotel room when he was 51 years old. He was alone and sad. And I was like, that also can't mean nothing. He was a human being who never got well from addiction. And I make it my life's work to make all of that mean something that they were the catalyst to good work happening in the world. We have such a choice in how we see these things. And I know that's a piece that when you see it from an outside perspective sometimes it can be really hard to see people choosing to go down the path of maybe making it mean something negative and continuing to follow that path rather than like you are doing by choosing to see it as how can I help other people and how can I really turn this into something um, that I can learn from and grow from and continue to grow in this life because I think that's at the end of the day what we're here to do is learning and growing and um like we're here for for a short period and we don't know how long that is right so to be able to learn from every experience that we have and really turn it into something that other people might be able to also do something cool good with um I, I really admire that and one thing that we all could get better at in society is, you know, certainly moving from victim to like, what am I going to do from that? Great. But then what about, you know, I hear so often when people are grieving, you, know, you have friends and they come to the funeral or friends that are right, right there in the fray of when, you know, if in my case, I had you know, gangsters coming to my house and all kinds of things. And they're there for the drama but six months later, when you're alone in your house and it's all still happening, no one's around and they don't want to talk about it. They're going out to Earl's for dinner and they're wondering why you're not coming and why you're so sad. And I believe that we have not taught for very many years in our culture how to hold space without flinching for other people's pain. To be able to sit with someone who's in pain and not offer fucking stupid advice, pardon my French, but it makes me so mad. But to sit with someone and simply look at them and be like, whoa, thank you for sharing that. Let them be in their pain. It's their pain's not dirty pain. It's just pain. And like to be able to sit with them and not fix it or figure it out or like we try to give advice to mitigate our discomfort with someone else's pain. And then we just make it awkward. So if you want to be someone who can help people through grief of any kind, even the grief of a job loss or 
if they got breast cancer and lost a breast, I mean, there's grief in all of these things. Can you, can you be a person who can hold someone's gaze and take a deep breath and regulate your own nervous system and just be with someone in their pain? Because that is the most healing thing for someone who's grieving. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. And as you're saying that it, it really does make you think that people are grieving. I mean, probably at any given time, people are all grieving something different. And I know for myself and Sydney, both, we both exited relationships in this past year that we were in for quite some time. And um, I'm just kind of, that made me go back to the reactions that I've received over the last, like, six months or so to um it is it's uncomfortable for other people more so than yourself a lot of times too to be sharing these things and to be authentic in what you're experiencing or some of the things that you're going through and I think even like now I've been out of that relationship for quite some time and even still if I tell people that um, me and this person aren't together anymore it can be really an awkward space to be in because it, it because of how people are reacting and they're not able to hold that space so I think regardless of what it is you're going through you're going to encounter these experiences and I know like some of the stuff that Sydney went through when she first um, had her experience of loss of the loss of Spencer it was it's pretty crazy to hear these stories of how people might react to things when you're just sharing your own experience. So thank you for kind of putting that into words. I think we don't talk about that enough and it is something that we all need to learn to do better at. You know, when I was um, five months old, my sister died, she was three. And my mother told me that people would cross the street so they didn't have to talk to her because they didn't know what to say. And she was like young, like 22, and she felt so alone and ashamed. And like, you know, these are skills that have been taught in ancient cultures, like in, in, in the indigenous cultures, they teach you how to be with people and their suffering. We're so disconnected. We don't know how to do that. And I think that if we're going to um, be a part of the, the healing for anyone going through grief, we have to think, who would I have wanted in my moments of grief? What would I have, what would have made that better for me? And likely it would be someone who's just sitting with you, not judging you, you know, just by your side. You know, my friend, um, my friend, Chelsea um, Lashenko, she lost her fiance two weeks before their wedding. He drowned in a river rafting accident in Kelowna. Um, uh, this is probably about six years ago. And obviously that was horrific. And, um, you know, in, I, I was able to hold good space for her when a lot of people weren't, there were many people that, that did as well, but she did a lot of healing through blogging and, and that kind of thing. Anyways, a couple of, well, maybe a year or so after that happened, um, my first husband, uh, Steve, he drank himself to death in a hotel, as I mentioned. And though he tried to kill me and he went to prison and I hadn't talked to him in a long, long time, I was shocked at how grief stricken I was by that. 
And you know who called me first? Chelsea. And she said, do you want to go to, for a walk and not talk about it? <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, I do. And I was so grateful for this human who thought about what she would have wanted in her grief and offered that to me. We don't talk about death in our culture. We don't revere it. It's not just part of life. I was very fortunate to be raised in a family where, you know, when our grandparents were sick or anything, my dad or any friends of the family, my dad would drag us down to the hospital and we'd be like, dad, I don't want to go. He's like, I don't care. You're going to sit with sick people. That's what you do. You go visit sick people. And I got to sit with both of my grandmothers when they passed. And like, it was incredible. Like what a gift. But I had a dad who was like, you will sit there and learn to be with people when they're suffering and you're just going to get over yourself. You know, he's like a redneck dad, but it was the right thing to do, you know, and I'm so grateful for him making me exercise that muscle so that no, nobody likes it. Nobody wants it, but like, we have to know how and do the hard thing in the moment when someone else is suffering. Yeah, I think you can only learn and grow from doing those things. Even, you know, discomfort helps us to grow regardless of what that is. Yeah. And I mean, I act like I'm all really good at it, but I'll tell you a really funny story. So it's not funny that somebody passed away, but one of our neighbors, their son committed suicide a few years ago. And my sister and I were, were in my parents' kitchen and, and talking to each other and going, we know we need to go over there and talk to the parents. We need to go over and be with them and say something. And, oh my God, what do you even say to that? I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. And our uh, very dear friend, he said, oh, just stop it and pushed us out the door. <laughs> it's like, okay, yes. <laughs> just put on your big girl panties and go over there. But you know, it feels good to do the thing that we know we're supposed to do. It, it's, um, it's one thing to think about, I should drop by, uh, you know, or I should call or I should sit with them. And it's quite another to actually be one of the maybe 5% of people who actually do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to go show up and do those things is, I mean, I, this morning, I switched to gyms. And for some reason, that feels like a breakup every time if you switch to a different gym. And I, for a couple weeks was like, I hadn't been going and I thought I should just send them a text and tell them that I'm not going to be going there anymore. And then same thing, I put on my big girl panties, I acted as an adult should and I went in and I had a workout and I at the end of my workout told them hey I'm I'm gonna switch gyms right now and it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was gonna be and I think these things never are right like we are all humans and we are existing in this world trying to do the best we can and to show up and have these hard sometimes really hard conversations I mean this is a prime example of something that really shouldn't be that hard on my end on on your side of course those are much harder when somebody is actually grieving or experiencing something that is really difficult to be going through Um, but it's just a good reminder to really be able to show up and and do the things that maybe you don't want to do and I think it helps your own um, 
like confidence and to know that you can show up for yourself and do these things, whether it is going and having a hard conversation or just making a small promise to yourself about something you say you're going to do. A hundred percent. It's like showing up. It's it's your character. Mm -hmm. Doing what you say you're going to do is, is your character. You know, we, we had to put our old chocolate lab down, um, in, end of May. And he was almost 11. And of course, like the lovely, like what, I mean, all my family pets are beautiful. It's horrible and heart wrenching and all of it. And he was the the dog that when I started my yoga studio in my basement, he would like lay by the door and he would go lick people while they're doing yoga and lay down and everybody loved him. And, um, the day that I had the day before I had to put him down, I mentioned it at the studio and, you know, everyone was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And kind of rushed out. But one girl who had come to the studio for a long time and had done one of my teacher trainings, she said, may I come and see him? And I was like, Oh, Oh, and she brought, Oh, look at, I'm going to cry. She brought wildflowers and she sat with him and we didn't talk about it. We just, cried and she told him he was a good boy and that meant everything to me and I thought about how easy it is to send a social media text and say I'm sorry for your loss and you know what that is it's bullshit and it's a cop-out it takes courage to show up in the face of tears You make both of us cry thinking about <laughs> our dogs too here. <laughs> but it does. It takes so much courage to be able to go and have those. I mean, it's not even a conversation sometimes. Sometimes it's just exactly showing up, show the fuck up for yeah. the people and the things that you love. Yeah. And so if you know someone who's grieving, show up, ask them, how do you want me to show up for you? How can, you know, we, I know we, this podcast is really about people going through grief, but I think a bigger conversation is like, how do we support people going through grief? And it's exactly what you just said. Show the fuck up and, uh, and keep showing up and keep showing up and keep showing up. It's um, long after you get over it, they're still going through it. I can make a suggestion for your listeners. And this is something that I, I learned um, a long, long time ago from my mother. She diarizes in her calendar. She marks down the dates of like her friends when they've lost children or they've lost a loved one or whatever. And it's in her calendar and she makes a point of calling them. And so I make note of, of those kinds of things. Um, for friends, I have a friend whose brother passed away recently. And so I have it in my calendar, his date of death, because it means it's going to mean something to her forever. And I just send her a little text or give her a call and say, Hey, I'm thinking about you today. It's mm-hmm. something we can all do, you know, it's huge. Um, we are getting to the last bit of our time slot here, Pam. And so I would love to um just kind of begin to wrap this up by um, asking a little bit more about your offerings and um, what is available to our listeners through uh, Shift Labs, Shift Yoga. And um, we also saw you have a Wednesday Wisdom Circle available too. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about that. 
Yeah. So when's every Wednesday, this is my give back to the world. Um, for I started it during COVID and we've been doing it for three years now. Um, never missed a Wednesday. Wednesdays at 6.30 a.m. PST. I offer a free on Zoom um, wisdom circle where I do a spiritual or personal development teaching for about 10 minutes. And then I guide everyone through a meditation. And then there's an opportunity for anyone to share anything about the teaching or share gratitude in the space. And it's just a beautiful community of people from all over the world and, and um, a wonderful way to kind of surround yourself with positive energy and have some new things to think about and talk about in your life. Though that is um, everyone's welcome. It's always free. It's always open to, to anyone in there. You can have your jammies on and your camera off if you like, it doesn't matter. Um, Shift Labs, I do do some one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, I also offer some leadership programs, Leadership Unleashed. We have a, a weekly mastermind for people who are trying to grow their, their heart-led businesses and uh, scale their businesses, become better leaders in their lives and their families. Uh, I have a coaching certification, as I said. Um, and at Shift Power Yoga, we offer a 200-hour yoga teacher training that is world-class, world-renowned. Um, that one's starting at the end of September and there's still some time to get in on that. So, um, yeah, really, you know, I still teach yoga too at my studio three or four times a week You can catch me there. And I'm often in classes there. Um, and you can buy my book on Amazon. So those are all the things. <laughs> awesome. And your social media handles, uh, at Pam Raider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we'll link all of that in our show notes. And do you have any final um, thoughts or anything you want to say to just end this up? Yeah, if you love an addict, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it, and you are responsible for healing yourself. And that's the best way to help your addict. And I think that's the message I'd really like to get out to the world is that we are all responsible for, you know, we, we're not responsible for our trauma, but we're responsible for our healing. And when you heal yourself, you have a much better chance of um, having an impact on your loved one. Thank you, Pam. Thank you for joining us today and for sharing your experiences and all of your um, tips tricks resources so beautifully here today for us and for our listeners we're excited to share this thank you for having me it's been a pleasure to chat with you ladies thank you for listening to the soul connection duo podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode your support for our podcast helps us to grow our amazing community and allows us to create new and exciting episodes each month please leave us a rating and review on your favorite listening platform and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for new content updates and more.